Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network in collaboration with the Journal of Women's History. I'm Samuel Gee, today's host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Tiffany Florvo about her new book, Mobilizing Black Germany Afro German Women and the Making of a Transnational Movement. Dr. Florvo is Associate Professor of 20th Century European Women's and Gender History and an affiliate of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program, Institute for the Study of Race and Social Justice at the University of New Mexico. She received her PhD in Modern European History at the University of South Carolina. In addition to her current monograph, she co-edited Rethinking Black German Studies, Approaches, Interventions, and Histories with Vanessa Plumley, along with numerous scholarly and public history articles. In fact, she has become a public intellectual following the footsteps of the people whose work she has so lovingly detailed and analyzed in her book. Without further ado, Tiffany Florgo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sandy. I really am so excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm very excited about this book as well. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you were born, where you went to school how you became interested in the history of Germany generally and Black Germany more specifically. Okay. Um, I was born in South Florida um, to two immigrant parents. Um, uh, My mother is from the British Caribbean, Trinidad, and my dad is from the French Caribbean, um, Haiti. Um, And so I think intrinsically there's been uh, an interest in diasporas, sort of like, you know, African diasporas, plural, and what that means. Um, and I, interestingly enough, had a German pin pal. <laughs> and I think we started writing when I was in middle school. Um, and as I was in high school, uh, I went to visit her family for a summer. I spent a month with her family. And her she lived, her and her family lived in the area near Frankfurt. And so I had like a spectacular time and gave a lecture in her class, her high school class, and came back after the trip thinking, okay, I'm going to learn German and I'm, I'm hooked. And so I applied for a fellowship to study uh, in Germany for a year, an exchange year, and I was a finalist. And then I, I was a semifinalist and then I was a finalist. And then I spent an entire year living with a host family and going to school in Germany, going to high school in Germany. Um, and that sort of continued my interest in Germany and specifically how race still was an important aspect in the German context. Um, I had my own sort of racialized experiences there that I kept thinking, but I thought they were good. I thought they were good. <laughs> like, why are they saying these things? Um, and I think I became more and more interested in like black Germans and their experiences on that sort of in the post-war post uh, post wall landscape. Very interesting. And and so then first of all, I uh, I'm amazed and applaud you for actually going abroad while you're in high school still. 
and try to learn a new language. That's pretty amazing. And then uh, how did you actually get into history itself? Yeah, I mean, I think it was not a love that I, I was not in love with history. And I, so I was in the IB program in high school, International Baccalaureate. And our history, prof- our history teachers were oftentimes like the, the football coach. And so um, history was not like, ooh, I love it. Um, but, I w- but I did like it. Um, but it wasn't until college that I took some history classes with professors at um, Florida State um, that I was like, wow, this is something I could see myself doing. Um, but I also liked German. And so I was a double major in both history and German literature and languages because I liked analyzing texts and I liked reading German German novels and German poetry. So I tried to combine the two with my major. Um, and so that's that's I think you can see that in the book as well. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Okay, great. Well, why don't you then tell us how you came to research and write Mobilizing Black Germany? And by the way, that cover is just gorgeous. Um, by, is it Diana Ejegda? Is that how you pronounce the name? Yeah, it's gorgeous. I love looking at it. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. Um, and I basically like stalked her. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that year, um, and wrote an email to her and said, Hi, I'm I'm I wrote a book and I like your artwork. May I use it for my cover? And she wrote back and said, "Sure, you can." And I sent her a copy. I sent her like a PDF version of my intro, and she was like, "Yeah, I'm I'm sold." And I was like, "Yay, yeah!" <laughs> so yeah, and her work has been featured everywhere. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, it's so gorgeous!" So yeah, I was very grateful she took a chance on me <laughs> and let me use the cover. Yeah, I think the research for Black Germans, I mean, I think I initially had this idea when I applied to grad school to go um, at UW-Madison, um, and I did some preliminary research um, when I was at um, Madison, and we went to Hamburg and Berlin and just kept searching for anything related to like Black German mobilization. And I found a few things, but very minimal stuff. Um, and so... As I increasingly sort of read more on Black German studies and more on sort of the Black German movement, and particularly it was sort of discussed through um, German literature and um, sort of mostly sort of Maya Eam and Fab Kennan um, and some of these sort of liter- literary, um, significant literary works, that I grew more and more interested in where I could find sources about it. So I thought, oh, it's got, there's got to be something in like German. Um, German National Archives and so um, state archives and so when I um, when I received some funding for my dissertation I you know was in Berlin I actually was like sponsored by um, Marion Kraft so she was like my German connection so I had to have a German sponsor for the Ger- DAD um, fellowship um, and so she was my sponsor uh, and she was certainly sort of she certainly features in the book and I was sort of sad because I kept writing these German archives and they're like, we don't have any information on the black German movement. We don't feature anything less than 25 years old. And I was like, but what about the fall of the wall? But okay. Um, so, and so I just was so um, saddened and I thought, okay, let me sort of figure out who, which people are significant and also related to the, to the movement. And so one of those um, individuals was Dagmar Schultz who um, 
agreed to meet with me. And I was like, hi, you were very, you know, you helped to edit Fabian and you knew Katarina, you knew my, um, would you be willing to meet with me? I'd like to write my dissertation. I sort of wrote to her what my dissertation was on. And she came with Ikahugo Marshall and Rhea Cheatham to the cafe. And I was like, what? <laughs> Who? I was like so shocked, Sandy. I was like, what? They're all there? Like, this is, it was like a bizarre world. Like, uh, um, and then. Fangirl time, right? Pardon? Fangirl time. It was fangirl. I was like, what? I read your memoir. And I basically was like, Ika, I read your memoir. I love it. And she was like, you read my memoir? And I was like, yeah, it made me cry. And so, and so I was like fangirling a little bit, but then they also started to quiz me. And so. They both are, I mean, Ika and Rhea are very frank German women. And so they were like, they, they immediately were like, who is this person? And so they just kept asking me questions. And they're like, do you know this? And I said, yeah, I, I discovered that. And they're like, wow. I mean, by the end of the conversation, they basically were like, okay, she's, she's good. She, she knows what she's getting into. Um, and so they basically befriended me. And um, I had a housing issue. I mean, I'm sure many people have housing issues when, they, when they're dissertating. But I was living in like this sort of not really a hostel, but like this sort of this uh, international house. And I was living in the bottom, which was basically a converted basement. Um, and I uh, had traveled to the U.S. for a conference and came back. And, the, and my wall was the sort of wall was starting to be covered in mold. And yeah, I was like, okay, yay. Um, so Rhea basically, you know, Rhea Cheatham basically was like, come and live with me. And I was like, what? And she's like, you can't, because I basically was like, I have mold. And I learned what the word for mold was because I, I was like, shimmer, shimmer. She's like, what? You can't have mold in your house. You can't live with mold. That's not healthy. Um, and so she's like, come and live with me. And I was like, what? Live with you? Um oh my God. And then in the course of living with her, um, she's like, here is some material that I have from the movement. Do you think this will be useful for you? Um, and she takes out this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, no, not at all. And it's in this suitcase. Um, and I start flipping through it and it's so, so important, like stuff I'd never thought I would come across. Um, and you know, at one point I was like almost in tears in terms of just the richness of what she had. Um, and then, so it started from there. Um, and then I found more stuff in um, countercultural archives, sort of like feminist archives, um, LGBTQ archives. Uh, so there's a lesbian archive in Berlin. There's also this great um, feminist archive in Berlin. So that allowed me to find traces of black German um, women in particular in those different sites. How did you know where to find these uh kind of niche archives? Um, I wondered, so one of the organizations that I um, write about in the book, Adefra, Afro-German Women, was founded by a lot of um, Black queer um, queer women and who were involved in feminist circles, but then also involved in the um, LGBTQ movement in Germany. So I thought there's got to be something about them um, at um, this um, archive. So Spinboden is the archive. And sure enough, I could find traces of um, advertisements for one of the journals that Afriketa published, uh, one of the journals that Adefra published, which was called Afriketa, 
advertised in some prominent um, lesbian uh, magazines. And, and then they had materials. Um, they had a few brochures. There are a variety of sort of lesbian week um, events that would were hosted in Berlin, annual events that were hosted in Berlin. And they had a few brochures about that. And then they also had Fab Buchanan and a few things. So it wasn't like an overwhelming amount of material, but there was enough to see there was a connection between those um, that are um, that, that movement and those women with sort of black German women. And then I learned about the feminist archive, I think uh, just through sleuthing in which I was like, Ooh, there's gotta be stuff about black German women at this feminist archive. And there was, there were sort of copies of Afriketa at that, um, um, at that archive. There are also copies of other um, migrant organizations at the archive, which I talk about briefly in the book, but there's so much more to, to uncover. And so that was how I was able to like get in. Yeah, that's just fascinating and difficult. But I think in the in the long run, it's actually in some ways more fun when we do that kind of slow thing and uh, find these find the voices in different parts of the of, of the city that you wouldn't ordinarily find. Um, so so I'm gonna kind of go bigger here in terms of what your project is about because you're talking about uh, black Germans and mobilizing them. And I thought maybe we could talk about the small concept of race and racism in the former East and West Germany and how those differences shaped the Black German movement. Yeah, that's a really good question, Sandy. Uh, only, you, oh, but only in like 10 words or less. So. Of course, of course. Go. <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> tiny, Sandy, tiny. Exactly. <laughs> it's like model you when again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what's so interesting, and I don't think I recognized it prior to the project, because prior to the project, I had this conceptualization of, you know, West Germany as being, oh my goodness, West Germany is still racist. <laughs> like, even, even though they claim their claims to progressivism and tolerance are, you know, rhetorics that they used, the, the everyday reality was that they were still quite racist and that everyday racism was quite, you know, quite prevalent in in language and symbolism in sort of in, you know everyday commodities that you're like what that's not oh my goodness so um but it's through the course of the project too that i realized that east germany was also racist um even though there was uh i mean both 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 uh east germany and west germany you know you know basically purge race um, you know, racism from like the the German lexicon in ways. And they really sort of enshrine in both their constitutions, like, you know, we won't, you know, we will not discriminate against race, gender, etc. And these are certainly legacies of the Nazi period. Um, but in the same token, uh, East Germany, in not talking about race, it still did not um, change the fact that they still had difficulty with Jews, difficulty with migrants who were in um, the country. So migrants from Mozambique, Angola, uh, Vietnam, issues with um, with other sort of Black Germans. Uh, and so it was interesting to see that both sides, even though ideologically different in terms of thinking about communist East Germany and you know, capitalist West Germany, still had a commonality in terms of their their engagement or limited engagement with race. Did you see, did you find really, really distinct differences in those concepts though? I think there 
were sort of distinct differences in the sense that like part of East Germany's uh it's internet part of East Germany trying to acquire um, international legitimacy was an effort to sort of connect itself with the African-American freedom struggles and other sort of socialist leaning movements across the globe. And so on the outside, it looks like Ger- East Germany is very tolerant because look, they are connecting with African-Americans. You know, Paul Robinson is coming over Du Bois, W. Du Bois, and his wife Shirley Graham Du Bois uh, were in East Germany. Um, Ollie Harrington, uh, a cartoonist, uh, lived in East Germany. But that also hid uh, that hid the fact that they really didn't know how to deal with their own racialized subjects, uh, and especially sort of um, individuals of, uh, especially by uh, Black Germans, but then also. Um, individuals of immigrant backgrounds like Vietnamese uh, Germans. And so you see that interesting, you know, you know, publicly they're like, Ooh, solidarity politics with anyone dealing with racial oppression, but then they're not really, they're sort of like a blind eye to the racial oppression that existed in East Germany. Right. That makes total sense. And uh, very similar, I think, as you mentioned in your book, with the treatment of Jews and the racialization of Jews in the East and the West. Right. So one of the words that you use a lot and expressions you use is quotidian intellectual. You do this throughout the book. And obviously you're saying the Black German movement, not obviously the other time in the book, but uh, that Black Germans uh, really created and, and really fostered themselves as quotidian intellectuals. So I'm trying to figure out how you're distinguishing between a quotidian intellectual and other sorts of intellectuals and why this distinction is important to me. Yeah, that's another good question. And I think that's something you're just saying that. <laughs> no, no. I think it's I think you're you're on to something. Um so I think I initially thought, ooh, they must be um organic intellectuals like Gramsci's uh, uh articulation of what of who um, organic intellectuals are. They're sort of non-traditional intellectuals. They com- they constitute a social class. Um, they did dis- disseminate ideas. They, you know, are a part, they're outside of what we, outside of the confines of like traditional intellectualism. And so in part, I think uh, black Germans are outside of what constituted the traditional um, confines of intellectualism in Germany, but then they're also a part of it. Um, and especially because Germany is such a space where its identity is built on this notion of it being, you know, this land of um, poets and thinkers and, you know, high intellectual culture. Um, and so I think for me that the idea of quotidian intellectual really allows them to sort of, at first it sort of is uh, what's important about it is that they're really focusing on everyday instances of racism, not only in um, the sort of content, but in their form. They're also highly connected to this global community of individuals in the diaspora. So I think there's a, there's a interesting sort of global connection that is 
undergirding uh, this idea of um, quotidian intellectuals. And the, and the th- third idea is that they really try to utilize vernacular cultures and offering new aesthetics and new art forms in ways that allow us to see the exchange of ideas, the dissemination of knowledge, different knowledge forms. And so I think that's how they differ from sort of Gramsci's uh, organic intellectuals. I think there's something about the the global, the international that really is significant, especially not only with, you know, Black Germans' own sort of um, cultural backgrounds, but also with the networks that they forge. Um, and it's, they're never disconnected from the international. And I think that really helps with pushing this notion of quotidian intellectuals. I mean, I got some pushback um, with the reader reports or like, why is this not Gramsci's organic intellectuals? And so I'm like, oh God, why isn't it like Gramsci's organic intellectuals? (laughs) (laughs) So you've heard this question already. Yeah, it's like, why do I have to? And I think it forced me to really recognize the distinctions in terms of, you know, Gramsci imagines that this, uh, that these organic intellectuals will eventually become, you know, mainstream intellectual intellectuals pushing, you know, really pushing, um, really getting sort of capitalist systems to aware, be aware of their, their, their issues and their problems. Um, and that sort of Marxist, uh, understanding of um, organic intellectuals isn't necessarily there with um, quotidian intellectuals. Black Germans aren't Marxist-Leninists, sorry. They're not calling for um, a a socialist revolution per se. You know, they're they're actually sort of middle class there. Some of them are, you know, I wouldn't say they're an educated elite, but some of them are educated and, you know, would be, you know, solidly bourgeois. Um, so I think that also challenges the notion um, sort of um, organic intellectuals um, in, in that notion too. So, but I think I'm sort of working on a new, a new article that is forcing me to also push this idea of quotidian intellectuals a little bit further um, and offer a bit more theorizing of why I think it's a useful category. Um, and I, recently someone emailed me, I'm sorry, I'm like, you know, no, it's okay. It's fascinating stuff. You're not. I okay. Okay. Um, but what's interesting is a, uh, a colleague just emailed me and said, did you realize you're doing like Alltagsgeschichte, um, history of the everyday with intellectual history? And then I was like, yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't, it didn't hit me as I was finishing the, I'm like, it hit me in the sense of like, oh yeah, the everyday. But as soon as I like uh, submitted and, you know, was like, ooh, these are the copy edits. I was like, wait a minute, this is really Alltagsgeschichte for like intellectual history. Um, and so he's like, so the colleague was like, this is really useful for thinking about Alltagsgeschichte. And I was like, you're right. I need to think about that and theorize that a little bit more. And so I think the the new article that I'm working on deals with that sort of like really teasing out um, much more of the specificity of why I think it's uh, quotidian intellectuals are, uh, is a useful category. Well, I'm going to push back this a little bit more. Why not just, I'm said, I'm going to push back just a little bit more. Why not just intellectual? Yeah. I, I think there's something about the moment that the black German movement uh, emerges like, I think part of it is also 
highlighting the 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 material impact of everyday racism on like black bodies as well as other racialized communities in Germany and that that really had a profound implication for how black Germans as well as other um, racialized communities could feel a sense of belonging within the national within the national community and so I think it's so sort of everyday seemingly innocuous even though they're not you know something seemingly um less insidious than say the Nazi regime, but in many ways still quite insidious in how it um, pervaded uh, black Germans lives. So their, their childhood, their adulthood sort of really grappling with the everyday, the buildup of those everyday instances in all forms and at all levels in German society. So I think it's really sort of stressing, stressing this sort of content of why everyday racism is so necessary in discuss and discussing larger issues of German identity as well as sort of German um, German citizenship, and so I think that there's something there about sort of quotidian the sort of quotidian nature of their enterprise, the sort of ability to mobilize in different ways um, at that sort of at that sort of small level, even though it's not so small, really I think helps. Um, sort of offer this understanding of quotidian intellectuals. Okay. Sounds good. I'm just, I'm, it's, it's a lot to take in, so I'm just thinking about what you're saying. Uh, so then I'm going to ask you about another big expression that you use. Uh, can you explain what you mean by a diasporic community in relation to Black Germans? Because that's another phrase as well, and, and that's a really tricky, slippery word, I think. Uh, that is not a criticism, it's just, I think it's a really tricky, slippery word. <laughs> so, yeah, and I don't think it as a criticism. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think when we think about the traditional notions of the diaspora, the sort of sense of dispersal due to, you know, due to a number of um, events, that they're basically a, dis- a group of people who are dispersed from their original homeland, and they form this sort of community after it. And we think about, you know, the traditional diaspora. We think about sort of the Jewish diaspora. We also still think about the Greek diaspora. But I see Germans, um, Black Germans, as fitting into this uh, this larger sort of diaspora, a diaspora community. Um, and I don't, and I see them in a way um, not necessarily linking back to the original homeland of, you know, Africa per se, but really they are linking back to this, you know, not only sort of the German nation, but also beyond the German nations to other diasporic communities across, across the globe. And so I think black Germans in many ways, and someone asked me at an event a couple weeks ago, are they a diaspora within a diaspora? And I think they are. Um, They really are a part of the German diaspora. They are a part of the black, uh, black diaspora. And then they sort of, um, but they're different from, like, say, the Jewish uh, Jewish diaspora or the Turkish diaspora, which you know was due to uh, migration due to work or economic um, conditions, or say the Jewish diaspora was um, pushed into sort of exile in some uh, um, ways, or the Armenian diaspora. But I think they still form an interesting um, black diaspora that doesn't that isn't linked to uh, these issues of exile, like the African American diaspora, or the issues of the Middle Passage as sort of like this underlying um, 
it's this underlying key um, moment that helped to create like modernity as like Paul Gilroy talks about in the black Atlantic. Um, and I think that's what is interesting about the black German case. It's not tethered to a middle passage um, a linear narrative. It's tethered to a variety of like diasporic moments um, in the, in the German case. Yeah. I found that part really fascinating about, the narrative, historical narrative of the Middle Passage and the historical narrative of colonialism and that so that the experiences of these various communities, even though they may be linked to the country of Germany and growing up there, are very different kinds of experiences of diaspora altogether. Yeah. And it's also, I think, different. I'm sorry to, I hope I didn't cut you off. Um, oh, it's also different from, say, the French diaspora, the French black diaspora, which is very much tied to this longer lineage of French colonialism, um, in which there is no, for example, there's no French, um, there's no German Fanon, <laughs> you know, there's no German Gandhi in which you have the civilizing mission in which the, the British and the French um, really tried to create um colonial subjects in their image. Um, and that was not the case for the, for German colonialism. Uh, so I think that's an interesting distinction too, that you have that, that, that lineage, that colonial lineage, which is still important in the German case, but you have like centuries of colonialism, whereas, you know, German colonialism was fleeting, even though informal colonialism existed earlier than like the, you know, 19th century scramble for Africa, um, colonial endeavors. Right. Right. Now I found all of that incredibly fascinating and thanks for um, clarifying that even more at this point. So let's actually get to some of the heart of your book, some of the chapters that are actually in it, (laughs) as opposed to my big, big questions. Tell me about God, Tiffany. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about Audre Lorde. You know, she seems to be incredibly influential on the women of the Black German movement. So maybe tell us about her role and her interactions with Black Germans and all their iterations. Oops, there's not her their iterations. Yeah, she's she's a very, very significant figure in the sense that for many she's considered uh, you know, this sort of godmother, this mother of the movement. For others, she's not. She's just a friend um, who helped them realize their their own agency their ability to sort of challenge uh, the german system but she she's a part of this sort of longer um network of sort of other individuals of african descent in berlin and another um and in other uh black uh and other sort of german cities but she becomes this significant figure because she's like this you know well-known black feminist she's a poet and you know, of several sort of black German um, women had read her books and just, you know, she wanted to meet them. I think that's another thing that like she comes to Berlin in 1984. She teaches at the Free University of uh, Berlin, which is certainly the university is a post 45. Um, it's created in the post 45 context. Um, it was a contrast to Humboldt University in the eastern part of um, Berlin. And so she comes to teach a variety of literature courses. And, you know, before she gets to the, to Germany, she's like, Ooh, I want to meet some black Germans. I know they exist. I got to meet them. And so I think it's that her interest, her, just her honest interest in wanting to meet, uh, the, you know, people, these people in the community and her willingness to, uh, really 
exchange with Black German women in particular that really becomes, uh, you know, a catalyst. But on the same token, there were so many other uh, Black diasporic um, expats in, in Berlin. And so Lord is, while a significant aspect of that, there's so many other individuals who are helping to sort of shape ideas about what diasporic, a diasporic community can look like and what the sort of pol- politics could, what the shape of the politics. Um, and so it's interesting that sort of Lord becomes sort of significant across uh, a variety of sort of European um, countries. She like travels to Switzerland, she travels to the Netherlands, she travels to the UK, she travels to France. So she becomes like this figure for other um other black women in the diaspora in Europe in ways that become useful for how they see themselves in the world. Yeah. Um, also, from what I recall, you were also saying that a lot of the women in the black German movement said, yeah, she, we, we liked her. She was a friend, but we're our own thing. And um, she wasn't all that intellectual on us. Exactly. Like there's a there's a tension still I think about her veneration her her lionization uh, should she be considered a mother of the movement should she be considered the godmother of the movement for some yes for others no um it, uh, for others it's a sense that like it detracts from the significance of Black German women who are at the forefront um, and I think just based on the evidence I have I think both of those ideas can could coexist um, I think for for the women that I, I'm looking at their letters, their correspondence to Lord, that she is um, a significant, uh, significant figure for them. And they do see her as like a mother, you know, a mother figure in many ways. Um, and she, you know, for, for my aim and Katarina Ogantoye, um, she becomes this, she becomes a sort of uh Figure that allows them to see their the see their amazing um, amazingness in so many ways that like prior to her interactions with them they realize that like ooh we're different we're racialized but lords you know lords exchanges with lord get them to see okay yeah I'm different but I'm significant and I'm part of a larger global community of the diaspora and that our voices and our stories our uh, our voices our narratives excuse me they matter. Mm-hmm. So- so then moving on to other parts of your book, why don't you tell us about the ISD and their role in creating a modern black German movement? Yeah, so ISD, Initiative of Schwarze Deutsche, or sort of Initiative of Black Germans, they are the one of two organizations that formed in the mid-1980s. Um, so both Katarina Ogentoye and also uh, Maya Eam, uh, were co-founders of at least the Berlin chapter of ISD, um, and that group. For so many sort of many sort of German literature, many sort of German liter- literary um, pieces refer to ISD as like, ooh, they were just a just a cultural organization. They didn't really do anything. They weren't really political. And I think through the through finding all of these uh, sources, I realized how very political, cultural, and political they were, and that they were not just about having Black History Month events, which I think in itself on the German landscape was very political um, to sort of really um, highlight race in that way. But they were also engaged in anti-immigrant um, um, legislation, trying to help with ref- um, helping refugees, 
tried to push for anti-racist um, legislation. So they were much more political than previous scholarship has given them credit for. And so it's, and it's through those sort of previous diasporic connections in Berlin and as well as in other cities that lend it, um, that helps uh, ISD come to fruition. Um, and they're, you know, chap, uh, it begins with like this, this, uh, national meeting in 1985 um, that takes place um, in uh, uh, Wiesbaden and sort of black Germans are meeting all across, black Germans from all across Germany are coming, so all across West Germany are coming to this meeting and they're sort of meeting with uh, black Germans for the first time. For some of them, they'd never, you know, had these interactions with black, um, other black Germans before. And so it becomes this defining moment and then after that, there are talks about, you know, creating regional chapters. And so regional chapters spring up, you know, in Frankfurt and Cologne and Bremen and Bielefeld and Berlin. And then that's when you see more momentum emerge. It must have been amazing for them not to see each other at this conference and kind of recognize themselves and others and the fact that there are more people who share these experiences than not. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely what, right. I was going to ask you, because it sounds like you're writing against a lot of people that call the ISD a cultural organization. Do you think that that, see, that representation of them as a cultural organization is a way to soften the political power they may have gained? Or yeah. do you just think it's kind of a blind spot that people have about them? Or what? Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about ESD in comparison to like other organizations, especially here in the U.S. When we think about SNCC, when we think about um, so Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or Southern Leadership um, Christian uh, Conference, those organizations really led to legislative changes here in the U.S. Um, they, you know, were significant in allowing the Voters Voters Right Act to to be. Uh, to, to be ratified and to sort of uh, really help with um, not allowing um, African-Americans to be lineal, um, liminal um, secondhand citizens um, in another way. So they're like liminal, they're also secondhand citizens. And in the German case, you don't see that like, you don't see that evidence of that of legislative gains um, in the same way that you would here in the U.S. But I think that the sheer um, existence of these organizations, well, especially sort of ISD, is political in the sense that they're really trying to to inter- reintroduce race as um, race discussions of race and racism in the German lexicon, and they're doing that in a in a space that really continually thinks that race is taboo and shouldn't be discussed, and so that in itself is a very radical and political act, and in the in the course of that, there you know, and I and I do think quite honestly, and I don't really say this in the book, but I do think it's that years of mobilization that allows the German Citizenship Act to change. Um, So the German Citizenship Act that I'm referring to is really what should tie German citizenship to paternity and descent, in which your your grandfather had to be German before you were German. And so this is certainly an interesting dynamic within the German, Black German community, because many of them, their fathers are either African, African African-American soldiers, uh, 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 men from other parts of the diaspora. And so that 
that lineage, that sort of paternal lineage is different. It's a, a lineage that um, tethers them to the African diaspora as opposed to the German diaspora. And so they changed the German citizenship, uh, the German citizenship law changes in 99 and 2000. And it's no longer sort of connected to, you know, the it used to be called the grandfather clause. And so I think it's that sort of years of mobilization on the part of black Germans, on the part of other racialized communities in Germany, that really does help to change uh, the, the law. It's really, really interesting. So, Sorry, I'm blanking here for a second. Okay. Uh, let's talk about ADEFRA, because I, I get the sense that ISD was an all-inclusive uh, Black German movement, men and women, I mean, if you choose to focus on the women of it, but that ADEFRA is much more specifically women-centered, and is that correct, a correct uh, distinction? That's totally correct. Uh, that... ISD is sort of driven by men and women. So Jonathan Toya, Ni Addy, all of these other men were were key on um, key in helping to form um, ISD, the Berlin chapter. And then you have other sort of Black German men helping to form the local chapters across Germany. Um, and it ISD forms as a way of dealing with feminist issues. It's really sort of driven by um, Black German feminists who were meeting at you know kitchen tables seeing um seeing that and recognizing that their um, sexuality and their racial identity were intertwined and that there needed to be a space for that type of um, activism and engagement and so i see isd is very excuse me i see adefra is very much being a sister organization of isd but also very keen on calling out the misogyny and the sexism and the homophobia in ISD because even though we're all like black Germans fighting against racism and you know trying to stake out a claim for more recognition uh in in the in the German nation it is not without tension and conflict and yeah so, no, that's what oh sorry go ahead oh no and I think that's the key part about like Adefra that we're like hey we can work with our black German brothers but we're not we're not going to allow them to get away with their racism, excuse me, their sexism or their misogyny. Yeah, I was uh, really impressed by the way that you handled the questions of intersectionality, which obviously Adefra was much more adept at doing than other groups, but it's, it's consistent throughout your book where you're talking about the blind spots and intersections of oppression that all of these groups of people that you're dealing with uh, were talking about. So, I commend you for that. Um, you also say that both of these groups experimented with inventing traditions for themselves. You should tell our audience what some of these traditions were and how did these traditions foster the effective diasporic communities you about? Yeah, I think you're, yeah, I think I was. I didn't think I was going, I mean, initially when I was in my dissertation, I don't think I focused on any aspect of invented traditions. Um, I, I, at least I don't fondly remember (laughs) this dissertation, you know, you know, in hindsight, maybe when I look back at that and not shudder, I'll find like, you know, oh yeah, I did, I did reference um, Hauptsbaum, Eric Hauptsbaum, but um, I think it became more, uh, it became clearer to me that through the creation of their conferences, through their workshops, through their, you know, organizational events, they're really trying to create um, 
diasporic traditions in the, you know, black diasporic traditions in the German context, which hadn't previously existed. And, and that's pretty striking when we think about um, German colonialism really, you know, existing outside the borders of Germany, even though it impacted the borders of Germany and, you know, in, you know, identifiable ways. And I see the um, black German community really trying to carve out spaces for themselves that allow them to have much more of a visible presence in a, in a society that really wants to, you know, ignore them and that really, you know, considers them to be invisible and not, or, or considers them to not be, you know, German, to be foreigners. And so I think that their effort to create a variety of these cultural practices really helps, and it's tied certainly to, you know, tied to the past, but really helps them um, stake, uh, stake a sort of viable claim in a nation that they're also trying to expand or extend beyond. Okay. I'm going to probably follow up on this question a little bit later. I think it's time that we left, but I wanted to ask you a few other questions as well. Uh, so, gonna, I hope I don't butcher the name. Fava Buchanan? Yeah, you said it correctly. Oh, yeah, you win, Sandy. <laughs> so, hearing German when I was young helped. Okay. Yeah, it did, it did. <laughs> so, um, what was it? How did it function for Black Germans? And then I think listeners might also like to hear about, is it May or my IEM's role it's, in this publication? It's my IEM. Um, uh, but so it's like it's pronounced M-A-I, even though it's spelled with an M-A-Y. Um, and I think I, I, yeah, I don't, for some reason, always pronounce her name my. And so I guess when I was doing dissertation research, I was like, yeah, my. And I was like, yes, I'd gotten it. <laughs> I even got it. Um, and so, yeah, Fabi Cannon is so significant uh, in the sense that, like, again, Lord was like, hey, you guys should be writing about yourselves. Like, I need to see more about who you are as women of the diaspora and your experiences in text. And so they basically, you know, uh, my and Katarina, uh, you know, start doing, you know, my was um, doing research or MA research on, you know, different aspects of um, the black diaspora in Germany. And together they interviewed a variety of women across uh, West Germany and they, they decided to write and come together. And I think for many, many black German women, Bob Buchanan be became their entry point to the movement. So it was published in 1986. And for many uh, Black German women in particular, since it's a very sort of feminist, um, feminist diasporic text, really centering different kind of well, woman, uh, sort of Black womanhood at various um, various ages, intergenerational um, Black womanhood. And I think it becomes an entry point for how people, um, how these individuals get connected to the movement. And um, it also is an uh, entry point for um, Black German men. Or, I mean, Tahir Della, who is a prominent um, activist in ISD, also talks about the significance of Faba Kemen. And so, and it also features in like ISD and Adefer brochures, like they always link back to it, like, you know, the movement emerges through the publication of Fabikenen and connections that were, you know, that were sparked and forged there. And so it really is a significant text that uh, helped to define the generation in many ways. It's not without its problems, clearly, for, and that's something I think I'd like to address in sort of other, um, other um, articles. No, address it now. 
<laughs> like, do it now. It's mixed. Like for Marion Kraft, who I also talk about in the book, she wasn't the biggest fan of Fab McKinnon. Um, I think for for some, there was too much of a victimization narrative going on in it. Um, that was not emblematic of all experiences of individuals, you know, so of black German individuals. Um, and I think for, for others, it just, it, it described them to a T. So I think for others, it's like too much of the victimization narrative for others. Just like, no, this is, this is how it was for me. Um, and I, I'd be intrigued. And there were also sort of discussions about who else to include in the volume, who didn't get into the volume, whose poetry was considered more esoteric than Mai's or other individuals. And so there's still some more interesting dynamics and narratives that can be uh, can be sort of teased out about Fab McKinnon. But for the most part, it's positively um, viewed in the Black German community. Do you see it as kind of the German equivalent of you know, this bridge called my back? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Sandy. I feel like it's it is in some ways. Um, but it's also not like the Gambahi River Collective, you know, like it's not like um it's not like staking a claim about what black it is staking a claim about what black feminism is, but then it isn't in terms of um in terms of the sort of more um other sort of feminist texts in the US, like this Brit called my black back or um home girls, it's also sort of this black feminist text in the US. So it is and it isn't. Um, but I do think that it is for many, uh, it's like a staging ground for their for their feminist activism and their diasporic activism. Excellent. So I was surprised that you had Black History Month in Germany. Being, being a U.S. center, even though I don't study the U.S., but uh, just being an American, hey, Black History Month is American. So, obviously, no. Um, what was the goal of Black History Month in creating a Black sense of place in Germany? Yeah, I think it was huge. I think you're right that, like, and they're drawing from, drawing from the Black American uh, case in which you know Carter G. Woodson created uh helped to create um, black history week that eventually becomes like a month um and i think they're drawing from these you know they're using other um symbols other events other figures to as diasporic resources to then you know adapt it to their local conditions so i think uh black germans see and they're connected to african americans who were living in um in Germany. So that's part of the sort of larger network of African Americans who are saying, hey, something needs to be done here in this context to celebrate and and acknowledge the the, dy- um, the dynamic um, existence of Black people in the German context. And so it becomes this really significant space for, I argue, you know, not only sort of this sense of place for, for Blackness in Germany, but like as a way of, um, as a form of intellectualism, like, you know, the, the workshops of the, the hair, even though the workshops are sort of like cultural, they're hair workshops, some of them are also sociological workshops, some of them are historical workshops. All of these events are way different ways of how knowledge was uh, dis- circulated and disseminated. And I see them as this, you know, staking a larger claim for the possibilities for Blackness in the, 
in the German German landscape, but also the history of blackness in the German landscape. So they're talking about um, black victims in the Holocaust. They're talking about German colonialism. So some of those sort of workshops dealt with German colonialism or the civil rights movement or black European identity more broadly. So the range of um, topics which you know appear to be scholarly topics um, really show you the breadth of Black Germans' intellectual engagement, but also their ability to create um, interesting sites of Blackness uh, in the German landscape. Yeah, that's fascinating. Before I get to your uh, conclusion or epilogue, I and it's linked to it a bit, but I wanted to know. So you've had all of this activity and you showed throughout your book that, you know, how politically engaged these black Germans are, how many diasporic Germans are engaged and, you know, trans, you know, transnationally. And I want to know if they have any kind of effect on sort of shifting perceptions of white Germans in those years in which they become active. Yeah. That's, yeah. Sandy, you're killing it with these questions. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think um, the sort of short answer, yes. Um, but I also think it's not necessarily tied to, I mean, it's tied to later legislative changes. So, it, uh, you know, as I mentioned with the German citizenship law and a variety of other um, legislative initiatives, but initially I think it adds to it changes German cultural sensibilities. Um, it really helps to reinvigorate discussions about race that were silenced and, um, and, and ignored for so long. And then it also, you know, I think what's significant too is that in 2006, Afro-German appears in the German, one of the pre- premier German um, dictionaries, Duden. Um, and that says a lot about the cultural currency of what uh, these individuals were able to do. So I think, but this is also not to say that they were able to like uh, to to make uh, their white German compatriots no longer racist. Um, right, but, right, but, right. And that links to your your epilogue because it's you're obviously ending as you're writing this book with this Black Lives Matter movement in the summer of 2020. And probably 2019, I'm trying to remember now, it's the whole year has been a blur. A blur, but, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been amazing to see you know, the worldwide Black Lives Matter movement and how it's caught on worldwide. So what has this movement meant for Black Germans and non-Black Germans in contemporary Europe? Because yeah. obviously there are problems there still. Oh, yeah. Racial profiling, on and on and on. I think for this younger generation of Black Germans, they're building on, they're basically building on the back, backs of Black Germans um, who were in this um, this, this sort of um, initial stages um, of the movement of the 1980s, 90s, and also the 2000s. So they've learned a, a great deal from those, um, from those individuals who are oftentimes still involved in the movement. So Tahir Della is still involved in the movement. Uh, Rhea Cheatham still hosts some um, events for Adefra in Berlin, along with Jasmine Edding and others. So I think they are, um, this new generation has learned a lot. They also credit that 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 uh, 
that older generation with doing so much for creating recognition for Black Germans, um, for establishing a place for Black Germans. Um, so I think that's significant, but there's, but Germans are still, and, you know, clearly we know from the U.S., Germans, Americans, Europeans more broadly are still, still racist, um, still exclusionary. Um, I think we've seen, we in terms of the European case, we see that um, entry into Europe means life or death for many migrants in the Mediterranean. Um, and that their lives seriously don't matter to certain, um, um, you know, to certain officials in the European landscape. And you sort of see that here in terms of thinking about, um, sorry, migrant families, detention centers, like these lives don't matter, even though they matter. <laughs> and so I think that's what's so striking is that like, there's still so much to be done in terms of um, in, t- in terms of getting their white compatriots to to understand the legacy of racism and the legacy of colonialism, even though the Germans lost their colonies quite you know in the after the second after the First World War, excuse me. Um, and another thing has been interesting, uh, which has come up in the German context of trying to purge race. Um, from the German constitution um, as if doing so would like, you don't have to deal with race anymore. Like doing so would like make every, every like make racial issues disappear. Um, And I think activists are pushing for, are pushing against that. And then there's also this new Afro census that has emerged in the German context in which they want, we want quantifiable data to know how many people of color exist here so that we can really try to push for more housing legislation, um, um, how um, um, employment legislation that really tackles discrimination. And so we can't do that because we don't know the, the official numbers and we don't know the official numbers because you can't, um, race is not officially on the German census. You can't sort of say I'm black or, you know. I'm yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it sounds in some ways similar to in the United States when people don't want to talk about race because they think it's racist. Exactly. Just the minute you mentioned race. Yeah, Exactly. And I think they're a part of this longer lineage in in Europe. Like you know, you study Spain, you get it. You know that like, and then, you know they there's this there's this reluctance to really you know race is invisible in many ways, even though it's visible. Um, and that like, and that it's a there's a centuries long engagement with you know practices of race making and racialization in in across across Europe that even dates back to the to the to the medieval period in which you see some of these uh some of these practices um at play and so i think it's really hard for europeans to see themselves as as racist it's usually it's usually exciting to you know wag a finger at the americans <laughs> and be like ooh it's a us it's a us imposition and that's the, that's due in part i think to the post 45 legacy of like ooh we can we let's do away with biological racism. Let's write it. Let let's write. Let the UN write a statement about <laughs> about race. Bada boom, bada bang. Um, but the reality is that it's so entrenched in Europe, um, and it won't go away. And I think this is why the, these Black Lives Matter movements are so significant because they are really trying to push these discussions about it. Like colonialism still matters. 
you can see the legacies of it. Brexit is uh, is a is a dynamic of that. Um, oh, so, yeah, okay. yeah, I mean that's a that's a whole other conversation, but <laughs> we'll have that privately sometime. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I think what these Black Lives Matter movements, you know, point to is like the the local specificities of dynamics in Europe that also you know certainly deal with elements of police police profiling and brutality, but also this longer lineage of colonialism and the implications of that history. That is wonderful. Not the legacy, but your discussion of it. So thank you so much. Uh, It seems like We've taken up a lot of your time, so I'm going to ask you one more question before we say goodbye in this very fruitful discussion. And it's an unfair question because I feel like you should be able to bask in the glory of your book for the next five years. But everybody always wants to know, where do you see your research going next? Yeah, I think, so I see it going in a variety of directions. So I'm working on several things that have been made it's been difficult a little bit more difficult and um with my my son being home so the the productive damn kids yeah those darn kids you love them but you're like what (laughs) so um i'm working on this um black europe volume with a colleague um in which we are um we've We've able we've been able to uh, get uh, contributors from both sides of the Atlantic to contribute to pieces on Portugal, um, Switzerland, uh, uh, Poland, uh, Russia, um, and so we are working on um, getting that book submitted to the press by this summer, hopefully with the con- other contributors. And then I've been interested more so on tackling um, Black Europe as, a, as an analytic and sort of tracing back the, so tracing back the roots of um, Black Lives Matter. So of course it emerges as this high hashtag at this movement, you know, with a, dis- with a distinct historical connection to Trevon Martin. But I think what Black Lives Matter, um, what these movements have been pushing for have long been constituent elements of Black activism in the European context. So issues of racism, issues of inequality, issues of citizenship and belonging, all of these things have been, um, you know, have been sort of driving a lot of or had driven a lot of uh, diasporic um, mobilization coupled with coupled with decolonization and the like. And so I'd like to work on this book on 20th century, um, you know, Black Lives Matter in the 20th century, in which I trace historical lineages of Black Lives Matter in in the UK, in Germany, in France, and in a few other sort of uh, European countries to show the the importance of these, you know, these movements and these efforts to create more um, equality and to, and to, to really um, push for more um, equitable human rights. And I'm teaching a Black Lives Matter course this semester in an effort to try to figure out um, how to structure that book. Because I feel like that's a big, that's a big book. And how yeah. do I, you know, <laughs> well, how I don't know. I thought maybe like a month of research and just another couple months of writing, not a problem. Yeah, a right? of course, nothing but net, Sandy, nothing but net. <laughs> I've got this. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think the class is helping me figure out like, there's so much cool stuff about, um, and 
this is something I'm only learning through um, some some students that I'm working with and also with the class that there's like so much interesting dynamics in terms of um, African-Americans in um, in Spain during the during the during the Spanish Civil War. Um, and, and sort of some staying in the connections that were forged. And then, of course, thinking about immigration from Equatorial Guinea and, you know, and what, you know, the, the role of um, the diaspora, the Spanish case and how that may or may not uh, may or may not differ from examples in the French or the, the German case. So I think that's a it's a larger project, clearly. <laughs> it's not going to yeah, take a, a bit. It is a bit. Um, but I'm really excited about doing it. Um, and I feel like it, uh, much more of my work is gearing towards looking at Black Europe more broadly, in addition to still sort of doing more work on the Black German movement as well. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that book when it comes out. Yeah. Well, Me too, Andy. Very- Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Tiffany Florville, whose book, Mobilizing Black Germany, Afro-German Women and the Making of the Transnational Movement, has just come out. So get out and read the book. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having me, Sandy. And thank you. 